Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, last time we talked about Athletic Greens, I talked about the fact that now my household is an Athletic Greens household. So I get up first, True's up, I make my Athletic Greens and and like drink my Athletic Greens while I'm making his breakfast. And then Diana gets up with the baby, she comes out, I make a baby bottle, baby's like halfway through bottle. And then I, like a perfect gentleman, bring Diana a blender bottle of Athletic Greens. And every morning she says, oh, thank you, honey. And I say, no problem. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients. It includes multivitamins, multiminerals, probiotics, and more. And they all work together to fill your nutritional gaps in your diet, increase your energy and focus, aid with digestion, and supports a healthy immune system, which is more important than ever. Right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system during the winter months. They're offering our audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit our link today. So simply visit athleticgreens.com majority and join health experts, athletes, and health-conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash majority and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Just real quick, I want to mention that after Ravi and I have our usual weekly discussion, we have an interview that we did with Dr. Stephen Hassan, uh, who is the author of The Cult of Trump. And this is for all of you who have said, hey, I've got a relative who I just can't talk to, and they're in QAnon. Uh, So we just said, let's talk to somebody who's actually written about what to do about that. So keep listening for that. Ravi, what's going on this week? Last week, we had one of the largest blackouts in American history affecting Texas, most notably where a few million people uh, were, were without power at its peak, some people without power for days. And there was a lot of suffering there. And of course, this touched off uh, a huge political battle where, you know, everybody went, you know, to their sort of ideological dividing lines. Conservatives predictably blamed uh, renewable energy. Governor Abbott, the governor of Texas, blamed the Green New Deal. He blamed wind and solar. Uh, Representative Crenshaw did the same. But it was clear uh, now that we know most of the facts that the biggest culprit was natural gas and frozen pipelines from natural gas and, and all sorts of issues that happen with the, the delivery of power from those sources. But of course, that's not stopping people um, from making incorrect claims. Just for our listeners, like when you hear this, 56% of power in Texas is from natural gas, and a third of that went offline. There were definitely some issues with, with other sources like like wind, for example, but it wasn't the main culprit. What do we make of this? Is this a national story? 
Oh, it's huge. I mean, for one thing, it is ridiculous to blame either like renewable energy in Texas. Like, does anybody really believe that the problem here is that, you know, Texas legislators were just so excited to embrace <laughs> renewable energy that they overdid it? Like, I really doubt that that's what happened. But it's not quite as ridiculous as blaming the Green New Deal, which hasn't passed. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, they're just like, it is the fault of this thing that hasn't happened yet. You may as well blame flying cars. Like, we don't have those yet either. So anyway, that's all really absurd. And yeah, it's a national story because of something that happened in 2015, or more accurately, something that didn't happen in 2015. Uh, so my friend Eric Johnson is now the mayor of Dallas, and he sent me uh, the other day, a link to this podcast that he did. And I listened to it. It's it's a podcast called Yolitics. It's just a podcast about Texas politics. And what it is, is it's a deep dive into a House bill that he sponsored when he was a state representative in Texas in 2015. And all this bill would have done, which by the way, I think would have made a huge difference here, is require the state to every two years have a comprehensive plan for what they would do in the case of a severe weather event that affected the entire state. And the, the manner by which that would be done was it would be informed by a report by the state climatologist. So Texas already employs a state climatologist, but they were like, we don't actually want to listen to the state climatologist. So Eric had this real simple idea. What if we just every two years made a plan based on what the climatologist said? And this bill flew through and then it got to the final like ceremonial part. And while they were voting, the Republicans got up and said, oh, by the way, we're against this. And then it failed on a party line vote, like right at the finish line. So clearly, like the industry lobbyists came in and killed this thing because, oh my God, you can't actually have people planning for things based on climate change. So to me, the reason it's a national story is not because of which energy sources you blame or choose to blame. The reason it's a national story is because this is the consequence of putting our head in the sand and pretending that things don't happen. Like denying facts has a real consequence down the line. Yeah. And you know, what makes me so like sad about the story is that there were real people suffering and you have the leaders that are entrusted to protect people immediately blame shifting instead of doing the right thing and helping people. And, you know, for, you know, you have great examples of Beto O'Rourke leading phone banks um, where he was getting hundreds of thousands of people to make phone calls and, and help people or AOC who raised millions of dollars, not even from Texas. And, you know, people could say whatever they want about those two, those two individuals about political differences you might have or policy differences. But, those are unifying acts. We talk about unity, right? Like their immediate response was to raise money, make phone calls for people, regardless of what their political parties were, uh, to try to just help people out. And, you know, shout out to Lena Hidalgo, who is the Harris County judge, which is the executive of Harris County. I mean, if there's ever a politician, she's 20 something years old in charge of the largest county, one of the largest counties in the U.S. I think it's the third largest county in the U.S. She has had to deal with a flood She's had to deal with voter suppression efforts when they were, were when they were moving uh, the goalposts in the lead up to the election. She's had to deal with this, and I don't know what else is going to come next for her. But she's definitely handled all of this, uh, and at a really young age, and as somebody who really looks out for constituents. So shout out to her. I remember when the unrest in Ferguson started. There was this one moment where, about four days after Michael Brown was killed, it became clear that there was understandably now an expectation that state officials 
would come and pay attention to this, that they would put it, whether you represented Ferguson or not, if you were a statewide official, that this would be at the top of your agenda. And it happened to occur simultaneous to the annual ham breakfast at the state fair. Now, that sounds like a small thing, but like the ham breakfast at the state fair, the governor's ham breakfast is like a parade of politicians annually in Missouri, and it's this big thing. And usually politicians from both sides are there. And at that moment, you had a stark difference because all of the Democratic statewide officials and state leaders all skipped it and went directly to Ferguson. And the Republicans all acted as if everything was normal and went to the state fair and went and flipped burgers and, and did all that stuff. And then Republicans, you know, no matter where they you know, were in the state leadership, they wouldn't go to Ferguson at all. They, you know, and if they did, they would like go and thank some of the police officers. And that was it. And this really reminds me of that, right? I mean, now they didn't go to Cancun, all right? So I'll give them some credit. Um, they did not beat feet for Cancun. But still, like, it reminds me of that a lot. It, it says, when there's a crisis, you are either looking around for who to blame or you're getting in to see if you can be helpful. That's a big difference. And I hope voters will pay attention to it in Texas. Well, you alluded to a trip to Cancun. Obviously. Oh, you know, did someone go to Cancun? <laughs> I, I didn't know. I'm assuming our listeners understand that part of the story. They know that. They know that Ted Cruz was caught going to Cancun. He tried, you know, flying commercial and had a police escort in the airport, but somehow thought he could get away with sneaking away to Cancun in the middle of all of this and then lied about it every step of the way and blamed his children, which turned out, you know, like after... <laughs> Turns out that that was not true also, and that like in text messages with family friends, it was very clear that the Cruz family just wanted to get out of Dodge. What's notable here to me is not just that Ted Cruz is a liar and somebody incapable of leading his constituents, but that the right-wing media came to his defense. Whenever there's a crisis, if you are seen to be having any sort of good time because our politics are incredibly stupid, this means that you're responsible for the crisis. Like what exactly? It's not a real time crisis that Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, can do anything about. Did they expect Ted to go there with like a blowtorch and start defrosting all of the pipelines? Now, a couple notable things about this. Number one is pipelines. I thought this was about wind turbines, right? What, what, <laughs> yeah, exactly. what, what pipelines are we talking about that are that need defrosting if this is just a Green New Deal thing? But this neglects the fact that he actually, let's assume the best version of facts here, he still had a police escort when the police were really needed to help constituents in the in the airport. Never mind the fact that a U.S. senator has a lot they can do. An average citizen has a lot they can do, which is what Beto O'Rourke showed with his phone calls. In one case that Beto highlighted, they got in touch with a man who had been in his house for a couple of days without food. And, and because their volunteers uh, were able to uh, make contact with this guy uh, who uh, didn't have help, they were able to go to his house and bring him to a warming center, potentially saving this guy's life. And who knows how many examples of stories like that existed. Never mind that you're a U.S. senator, there's federal resources, you're just an influential person who knows business leaders, community leaders, etc. You're just a, a human being who can just go down the street and volunteer at that warming center if you have the privilege. I mean, there's, there's plenty you can do, right? What kills me about this is, I mean, we literally end this podcast every week with, you know, we all have a platform, make sure to use yours. And like Ted Cruz just took his platform to Cancun with him, right? I mean, like now... Then they say, well, yeah, but like, what could I do about it? 
Well, there's a couple ways that I think to respond to that. One, I think about what we ended up doing in Ferguson, which is I was the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State didn't directly have anything to do with the events on the ground in Ferguson. And despite that, we created a nonprofit right away called Ferguson Rebuild. We raised a bunch of money for small businesses uh, in Ferguson that had been damaged in the unrest. You know, it would have been a lot harder to do if I weren't the Secretary of State. I mean, at the time, hell, I, I wasn't anything like Ted Cruz's platform. I mean, I think at that point I had like 7,000 followers on Twitter, but I happened to be the Secretary of State, so I could do that kind of thing. Now, that's one way I think about it. The other way I think about it is you don't need to argue to these people that they have a platform they can use. Every time there's a special election somewhere in the country, you know, I mean, Crenshaw's making like superhero videos about it, right? Like when they're, when they have these in, in Georgia. So clearly they understand that their platform is useful. And they raise money for their own this, campaigns. They have no problem with that. Exactly. How many millions of dollars does Ted Cruz have, you know, sitting there idle waiting for his next pathetic campaign for president? Like maybe that could have been used for that. So the idea that they don't have a platform that'd be useful here is almost as upsetting as the fact that it doesn't occur to them, I wonder what I can do. Like, that's a human emotion. Like, you should be compelled to be like, I wonder if I can help. I should probably try. Uh, or, you know, go to Cancun. Well, my so, my anyway. favorite reaction from conservative media was uh, Dinesh D'Souza, who said, uh, what could uh, Ted Cruz do if he was in Texas? If he's in Cancun, he's not using up valuable resources like food, transportation, etc. He says, this is probably the best thing he could do for the state right now. Well, this prompted oh, some wow. amazing reactions on Twitter where people, you know, helpfully pointed out, you know what? You're right. The best thing he could do is leave Texas. Uh, yeah. And it's just amazing that there are credible. I mean, credible is an overstatement here. There are there are significant conservative figures who are arguing that Ted Cruz's absence benefits Texas. That's what they're arguing. And, you know, we should just take them at their word and, and let's Absolutely. let's let's make that uh, part of the messaging. Uh, when he's up for re-election, but that's the re-election point here is, and he's not up for for another cycle. But at a certain point, these leaders have to be held accountable. Like, at what point is there going to be an ultimate judgment rendered? Uh, this just seems to have reached an absurd level where conservatives feel like they are completely immune from any consequences. It's funny. I was thinking about these pictures that I saw in the aftermath of Ted Cruz, you know, uh, like carrying things of water into into a trunk. That's always the picture they take when like I remember in a hurricane or something where Pence showed up and carried an empty box. And but whenever they do it after getting in trouble, it looks to me like court ordered community service. It looked or like something. He, he looked like when he had to make phone calls for Trump. Remember when yes. he had to go to the phone bank? But when I saw that, what it made me think of is this question of like, are we just going to see an endless amount of community service clips of Cruz in the next few years? But then it made me realize that, you know, so much of this with these senators and so much of their behavior is a function of their knowledge of how long they have left in their term. Ted Cruz is not up till 2024. And we live in a news cycle that it's hourly. It's not even daily anymore. And so you know, largely, I think he's figuring and he's mostly right, unfortunately, that a lot of this will be forgotten by that time. Now, the thing about that is what I'm going to be interested to see is over the next few years, how does Ted Cruz's messaging change as well? Because he's not dumb and he sees that Texas has changed and he sees that while Trump won Texas in 2020, it was no slam dunk and it was up in the air. 
and uh, and he sees how close Beto came to taking him out in in eighteen. So I, I think it's just going to be hilarious to watch the firebrand insurrectionist Ted Cruz, uh, you know, try and move to uh, a more practical and humane place and and put that that human suit on for a while. We'll see how that fits. <laughs> I've been out in Costa Rica for about four months now, and a lot of websites and tools that you count on, like Netflix, HBO Max, et cetera, will block you from using their site if you're outside of the country. And so I've been using ExpressVPN to access a variety of my accounts. And what it does is basically beams me in through the United States and reroutes me so I can access everything I need. But it, it does so much more than that. ExpressVPN lets you choose from over 90 different countries so that every time you run out of stuff to watch, you just fire up the app on your laptop or smart TV, switch your country, and hit connect. And then once you refresh the page, you'll get a brand new selection of shows. It's that simple. So be smart, y'all. Protect your data and stop paying full price for streaming services while only getting access to a fraction of their content. Visit expressvpn.com majority54 right now and get three extra months of their service for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S ssvpn.com slash majority54 expressvpn.com slash majority54 to learn more. So in this week in misinformation, I want to highlight an article from February 21st in BuzzFeed. It was a, it's a large investigatory piece by Ryan Mack and Craig Silverman. And kudos to them because they really unearthed some earth-shattering Maybe not fully surprising, but really important facts about what's been going on at Facebook. Here are the key findings from this article. It finds that Mark Zuckerberg personally intervened to change the consequence for Alex Jones. So uh, Facebook in 2019 determined that Alex Jones was what they call a dangerous individual. uh, And under that category of Facebook, not only is the individual's posts banned, but People are banned from sharing that person's ideas and quotes, et cetera. It's like, you know, a good example is Hitler is a dangerous individual. So not only is Hitler, you know, not allowed to get in a time machine and post on Facebook, but people aren't allowed to allude to Hitler, talk about Hitler, et cetera, in terms of sharing his ideas. Whether you like the policy or not, it is the policy. Zuckerberg intervened saying that he personally disagreed that Alex Jones was a dangerous individual, which meant that Zuckerberg said Alex Jones could be banned. This is a person who said that Sandy Hook was a hoax and that Parkland kids were crisis actors and continues even up until this day to sow misinformation and was central to the insurrectionist protests. But people can share his ideas and talk about him in lauded terms on Facebook. This article then uses that as a gateway to the bigger finding, which is what's going on at Facebook as it relates to conservative bias, which is not something we hear a lot about. And basically, the article finds that there is a massive conservative bias within Facebook because the person who runs the lobbying operation for Facebook is a noted conservative named Joel Kaplan, who clerked for Scalia, was a deputy chief of staff to Bush, uh, was part of the Brooks Brothers riots in 2000. And he is in charge of lobbying and he's in charge of content moderation. And the headline is, he is letting the tail wag the dog. They are intervening consistently to to block policies, sensible policies, to do content moderation uh, and to do common sense things like 
rate the quality of news because he's worried about what Republican senators will think about him. But basically the story is there is a conservative bias at Facebook and it's affecting the climate of misinformation that we have on the platform. There is a conservative bias because it is a fear bias and a money bias. It is no different than the argument that we've been having for years about the media where people say, oh, the media is liberal. The media, you know, no, the bias of the of the media is toward what makes money. Why do people think that Trump was wall to wall on every channel during the primaries in 16? It wasn't because people were biased against Trump. They were biased against eyeballs. They wanted the ratings. And Facebook wants the same thing. Anything that moves on Facebook, it it, it causes more clicks. It causes more ads. It causes more revenue. So they got a money bias, the same as anybody else. And then they got a fear bias, which is a fear of losing money bias. And that is a fear of people like Holly, people like Cruz, who will go off and say, oh, liberal big tech. Tech, we're watching you and invent this idea of a, of a you know, of a, a bias against conservatives. And what that really comes down to is it's just intimidation. That's all it is. It's, it's intimidation by people with large platforms, by politicians who don't just have platforms, but have the levers of power to do something about it. And they're, I don't think Zuckerberg b- agrees with Alex Jones. I'm sure Zuckerberg, I mean, he seems to be a fully functioning human in almost every regard. So I, I, I assume that he looks at somebody like Alex Jones and goes, yeah, that guy's a wackadoodle maniac. But he's like, mm, does it does tend to move some clicks. It does tend to cause some revenue. And I really don't want to tangle with those, with those uh, people that are pumping out of that white guy factory in DC. So as a result, he caves into it. And, and what's crazy to me about it is when you look at the rules we have for the FCC, like you can't say shit on television. Like you'll get fined if on the, you know, six o'clock news, they're like some crazy shit happened today. Like that person will get fined. But you can go on and say like, yeah, you know, they were all crisis actors at uh, at Sandy Hook and that's fine. And they're all communication and it's all the way we're getting uh, our news. So yep. uh, I don't get it. Yeah. I recommend people read this article. There, They also highlight tons of resignations of really important people um, that are crafting these policies are just really frustrated that they're getting overruled. And there's just a ton of juicy details in here. Like Kaplan uh, was one of the people, the, the, the most influential voices that argued against disclosing the extent of Russian meddling in the lead up to the 2016 election. Um, he intervened on behalf of Charlie Kirk and Breitbart and Prager University and others to uh, lessen penalties against them when they were spreading misinformation and lies. He helped uh, override an initiative to rate news uh, agencies. So basically in the lead up to the 2020 election, they had this really sensible policy which basically would use their algorithm to take into account whether a news organization was credible or not. And if you're credible and you're known to do fact-based journalism, you'd be helped by the algorithm. And if you weren't, you would be hurt. He argued for the sunsetting of that, which is what has happened. It's called It was called the news equality, uh, ecosystem quality. Like, there's a ton of stuff happening here. And I think the headline here is, even to your most libertarian relative, like, I'm sympathetic to a lot of people who are just like, let people say whatever they want. And if that's like, like, we shouldn't be in the business of telling anybody what they want and we can handle dangerous ideas. If that is your belief, you can still believe that something weird's going on in Facebook because Facebook is not, it, they're not taking a libertarian approach. They're not saying we believe in libertarian ideals. They're taking the approach that you talked about, which is that I'm scared of of wealthy and powerful people and Republican senators, and that's their motivation, not some kind of higher ideal about the freedom of exchange of ideas. Before we move on from this, we should just talk about what 
uh, our listeners should do about this. Jason, do you have any any idea? No, I don't. I, I don't do. I mean, I mean, it's weird, right? Because it's not like you can you can't lobby Facebook. But I mean, what we can do about this is we can make sure that we don't elect people who think that their role in government is to intimidate private industry into allowing speech that can incite violence, right? I mean, the the refs are being worked by the players on the field. And what we can do is change the players on the field. Right. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of things I've been thinking about are, you know, I've thought about deleting my Facebook account, but it's the the main way I keep in touch with relatives. And it's like a repository of so much information that's happened over the years. So they kind of have their hooks in me. I imagine this is true of a lot of our listeners. But things I thought about are um, checking my 401k to make sure I'm not investing in Facebook. Uh, if you're a part of a pension system, you should call up your pension system and just ask that they don't invest in Facebook or if they do that, they pull out of it. The same is true of like if you're if they're candidates for your city comptroller or the like whoever is in charge of the pension system in your state or city or whatever, you know, ask them if they will disinvest from Facebook. This is a dangerous company um, that is extremely arrogant uh, and that is doing a lot of damage to our democracy. And if, if dollars and cents and power are the only thing they respond to, then we need to push them on that front. I like your answer much better. (laughs) Well, as so many Americans have been locked up due to extreme and inclement weather across the country, um, I know a lot of people have a particularly hard time uh, and struggle with their mental health. And that's why we love BetterHelp. You know, it helps assess your needs. It matches you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's really convenient. And, you know, if you're in a rural area or you're just not satisfied with your options or you don't feel safe going into a physical office, uh, you could use BetterHelp and you can start communicating in under 48 hours with a licensed professional therapist. It's convenient, it's professional, and affordable. We want you to start living a happier life today. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com M54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com M54. Bombas makes the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. They've literally rethought every little detail of the socks we wear to make them way more comfortable, which by itself is completely awesome. But here's what we really love about it. These socks do more than keep feet cozy. They help give back to the most vulnerable members of our community. Because for every pair of socks that you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. The generosity of Bombas customers has allowed them to donate over 40 million pairs of socks and counting through their nationwide network of over 3,000 giving partners. And the impact is more powerful than ever. To those experiencing homelessness, these socks represent the dignity of putting on clean clothes, a small comfort that's especially important right now. So give a pair when you buy a pair and get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash majority54. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash majority54 for 20% off your first purchase. Bombas.com slash majority54.
Next, we have our interview with cult expert Dr. Stephen Hassan, author of The Cult of Trump. Uh, We hope his experiences can give you all some insight into the mindsets of family members who have fallen for ideologies like QAnon or even just plain old Trumpism. And all of these cult-like groups have lots of similarities in their mindsets. So here's part of our interview with Dr. Stephen Hassan. To rewind the tape a little bit, tell our audience about how you became interested in cults to begin with, because you had a personal experience with a cult. Yeah, exactly. I got involved with the Moonies cult for two and a half years. What turned out to be a a religious, political, billionaire cult run by a Korean named Sun Myung Moon, who claimed to be the Messiah and was promoted to leadership pretty quickly and became a right-wing fascist, basically. And when the Capitol was stormed January 6th, people from my former cult were there. I had such a radical personality change and turned my back on my religion, my country. I believe democracy was satanic. We needed to uh, uh, take over the world government-wise. And uh, and I was horrified when I was deprogrammed, and that happened after a near-fatal van crash. And when I woke up, I was like, "What happened to me? Like, how did how did how did I believe all of this?" And I became obsessed, also from my own therapy, to understand hypnosis and brainwashing and mind control. So then, what happened for you that helped you deprogram, and then? How has that changed now in the internet age as well? When, when family members and friends are trying to help you get out of a brain, brainwashing cult, the last thing you want to do is say, you're in a brainwashing cult. Because <laughs> then they report it to their leaders and they circle the wagons to uh, indoctrinate you against your family. But the, the, the bottom line was I, didn't, I knew I wasn't brainwashed and I knew I wasn't in a cult. And my father cried and said, how would you feel if it was your son who met a controversial group and disappeared? And he cried and I, and it just hit the real me. And I, I, I could see he really was worried. He was really upset. Dad, don't worry. I'm not in a cult. Let me reassure you. He said, just give us five days. And then if you want to go back, your mother and I will be able to sleep at night knowing we did the responsible thing. Hmm. And at that point, it was a challenge, you know, to prove I wasn't in a cult and I wasn't brainwashed. And I agreed. And making it voluntary was very important for the success of my intervention. And what helped me get out several things. One is interacting with former members who were warm, generous, kind-hearted, spiritual, one of whom I had recruited into the cult who had left the cult, so I knew her. So that that neutralized a bit of the phobia programming that, that mind control cults all use. It's the universal mind control technique is the implantation of irrational fears. But the other another big thing for me was, what is mind control? Like, what is it? And they said, would you like to know what Chinese communist brainwashing is? And as a Mooney, they were Satan. This was Satan on earth, was the Chinese commies, come on. 
So when I was asked, do you want to learn what Chinese communist brainwashing is? I was like, yeah. So then I went through the eight criteria of Robert Lifton's book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, with the ex-members, and they were giving me examples of each of the eight criteria. And I found myself thinking, oh, I have much better examples than those. <laughs> <laughs> but by the end, I was like confused because we were God being in the moon cult. They were Satan, but we were doing the same brainwashing techniques. So that what? put a big wheel of conflict in my head. It sounds like your dad's a smart guy or was. You know, one one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on is that our listeners are dealing with this QAnon phenomenon. And, you know, I just want to get a sense from you. What is QAnon? And maybe this is a good opportunity to talk about, like, I think you believe that QAnon might be a cult, uh, but even if it is or it isn't, maybe we could use QAnon as an example of what makes something a cult or not a cult and not just something else, like a system of beliefs or an organization or something. Great. So I have a chart I call the influence continuum, ethical influences on one side and unethical influences on the other side and with specific criteria to kind of distinguish the difference. Uh, so ethical influence, there's informed consent. So you know what you're getting into versus lying, <laughs> just as one example. So in my thinking, I think there could be cults along the entire continuum where there are ethical, even positive cults where people are totally jazzed around a person or an idea or a movement, but they know what they're getting into. They have the right to question. They have the right to read whatever they want to read and talk to whoever they want to talk to. They have the right to listen to their conscience. They have the right to exit if they're not happy and they want to do something else without fear or without punishment. So QAnon is an example of a destructive cult, in my professional opinion. I call it an authoritarian cult. I think the media has done a great disservice to citizens by calling it a, a kooky conspiracy theory because it really is organized and, and, and systematized to uh, indoctrinate people to have a cultish mindset and even a cultish personality that's dependent and obedient. And that's part of the hallmark of a destructive cult is that you're giving up your who you are to subsume under the, the group and what the group leader says reality is. And, and remind our listeners what QAnon is. So QAnon has been described as this weird set of beliefs that involve uh, uh, satanic cabals of pedophiles who are draining adrenochrome from young children who are trafficked. And there's this whole uh, conspiracy theory ideology, but I've done a deep dive with several researchers. And what it is, is it's a psyops is what it is. It's a deliberate co-opting by people with an agenda to confuse, disorient, recruit, indoctrinate. And they're using alternate uh, reality gaming 
techniques to not only get people to invest in what was that drop? What does it mean? But actually go out on the streets and do activism, including an insurrection attempt. That's interesting to me because I think a lot of us think of something like QAnon as something that like a dynamic, but you know, lunatic, like a dynamic lunatic starts and then, and then other people, you know, get roped into. But what I hear you saying is that when something like this starts, the people who start it know exactly what they're doing and they know that what they're saying is bull, but they have an agenda and they want people to take a certain action. So, so then who, who's at the top in QAnon, who's at the top of that pyramid? Who, who are the people who are like, let's create this absurd thing and get people to buy into it so we can get them to do what we want? Great question. So a lot of destructive cults exist, but then they get used by other agents for their own agenda. So they get taken over. I spoke with a founder of Anonymous uh, because he had led protests against Scientology and I befriended him. And he said, oh, I know the guys who started QAnon. It was a total goof on the Trumpers. Huh. And we, you know, they got nobody on, on 4chan. They went to 8chan. And then they got realized they could sell merchandise and make a lot of money. And then the Russians got involved. And what I didn't get, and I realized this when I was right, researching the Cult of Trump book, is the role of the religious right in the cult of Trump and this notion that we're in a culture war against the satanic Muslims. We got to save Christianity and we got to save also from the gays and from China. So we, it kind of the ends justify the means mentality. It has the four main components that are part of my model that helps to incorporate all of the existing brainwashing models, trafficking models, undue influence models. I look at behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. If you don't mind, why don't we walk through those four criteria with QAnon and, and walk us through as to you know how it applies to QAnon, like how they're exercising behavior control, information control, etc. Things have shifted for me dramatically where you don't need to go to an isolated physical location, especially in the pandemic. You're isolated at home on your computer and information is coming at you hour after hour after hour every single day. And our brains are absorbing information at a much higher rate than we're consciously able to evaluate it. So if you're spending hours on QAnon sites, watching videos, on discussion boards, getting likes, and this is the 21st century version of mind control that was done 45 years ago, making you dependent and obedient, rigid rules of regulations, black and white, all or nothing, good versus evil ideology, teaching thought stopping, using loaded language like fake news, like anything that goes against it automatically is fake news, MSM, mainstream media, ignore it. Like there's nothing valuable there at all. So they're teaching all of these techniques online 
But the bottom line is they want to create a dependent, obedient self. This enthusiastic, you're special, you have the special knowledge, and we're going to get rid of all the evil in the world and create a beautiful, idyllic, you know, situation. But there's no reality testing. There's no critical thinking. Evidence is ignored. Uh, thought stopping is, is trained into people. There's a huge amount of social pressure that's used. The bottom line is people are changing to radically different selves, different belief systems, and family members and friends are horrified. Like, what's happening to my Aunt Mary? Like, she was, she was a school teacher and smart and educated, and now she won't read anything. And it's like, that is what I hear and have heard for 45 years with people in going into Scientology or any number of other destructive cults. This radical personality change is the hallmark of a destructive cult. If I'm listening to this right now and I have a family member who uh, is, is in that situation, is that Aunt Mary like you're describing, let's start with just in general, whether we're talking Trumpism or QAnon, what in general is what you say to Because you must hear this all the time from people. So you know, what's your first thing that you tell people about what to do and what not to do, how to approach it? The first step is like educating yourself so you avoid do making things worse and so you can get oriented to making things better. So the what doesn't work is attacking the person, belittling them, labeling them, calling them stupid or crazy for believing it, trying to use facts to argue them out of it. In other words, a win-lose frame where I know and you don't know and let me fix you, that doesn't work at all. When my family tried to help me with the moon cult, that made me feel persecuted, validated the indoctrination, you know, and, and, and made me do thought stopping on myself in the cult identity. So, and, and what a lot of my friends have done and people have done in the U.S. is they cut off contact or block their family and friends on social media because they didn't want to hear more about QAnon, but that made it worse. So what I've been saying is, look, love is stronger than mind control and mind control doesn't erase who the person was before. Like you need to think about it as a dual identity situation. Steve Hassan before the Moonies, Mooney identity. There's still Steve in there hearing stuff. He's just trapped. He's just controlled. And so you have to, I have to help my clients understand not to catastrophize and say they're gone forever. No, they're still alive. They're still breathing. And therefore, you want to make contact with them in emotionally uh, positive ways that reminds them of who you are. Hey, I'm your brother or I'm your nephew, Steve. You know, remember, you used to have me on your lap. Get back those memories and rebuild the connections. So rapport and trust building is always important. But I teach people strategic communication techniques. And the major strategy change with people is they have to stop before they speak and think, how can I say this in a way that will be effective? 
to help the person to think for themselves, to get back to who they were before, versus just saying whatever comes into your head. There's a, a goal-oriented communication strategy that's necessary. And the number one technique is asking a good question with respect and waiting a really long time for an answer and then doing a follow-up. And another critical thing is the frame. The frame has to be one where you are saying to them, look, you're an intelligent, educated person. I respect you so much. If you find this valuable and you think that there's some real truth to this, then I need to believe it too. But please explain it to me in a way that makes sense. I need an, an interaction with you. So rather than you send me 40 links, give me one thing. Let's watch it together or give me time to go over it. And then we'll, we'll do follow up back and forth. And then I give you one thing and we agree to go over it. The idea is we're human. We could make mistakes. I say this myself. I look, you know, because they, they say I'm brainwashed. I'm in the cult of Soros and I'm a libtard and I've been brainwashed by, by all the left-wing media. And I'm like, really? Tell me, tell me what brainwashing is enlighten me. And then they realize they don't know what that means. And then I say, well, you're critical of China. Let me tell you what helped me get out of a cult was Chinese communist brainwashing. Want to know what those criteria are? So I meet them in a place where they're interested, where it's not attacking Trump and it's not attacking QAnon. We do case example. Another one that works well is traffickers, like they're against traffickers and pedophiles. So there's a cult called Nexium, where the leader's in jail for 120 years. He was branding women, billionaire in that cult, you know, actresses, famous people, there are documentaries about it. It's like, how did they do that to intelligent, educated? So I try to get them interested in the whole concept that brainwashing and mind control actually exists. Here are two examples, and that gives them a foundation to start reality testing. Another critical thing that I tell people to do, and don't try to do this all in one, one hour meeting with your family member or friend, because if, they, if it took them six months to get into QAnon, think about six months or three months to help them get out. Don't try to do a knockout blow. It sounds like a lot of what you're saying is you use analogous examples that they don't necessarily are thinking because they don't think of what they're in as a cult. So you can enter into a conversation about cults. And the idea being that just like what happened for you, you can introduce the concept of brainwashing in order to prompt them to question whether that's what happened to them, it, which is, I guess, a lot different than being like, do you think maybe you were brainwashed? I think is your point. hundred percent. And, and if you have a lifelong relationship with the person and you remember Heaven's Gate or you remember Jonestown and you knew that they thought it was terrible and occult, you can use those examples too, right? Yeah. So the goal is empowering people to think for themselves and make their own decisions. And it works. Why? Because cults suck. Destructive <laughs> cults are suffocating and they're time sinks and they're just horrible. Yeah. Deep down inside, you're not happy 
being in a hate-filled, paranoid cult? We're in the middle of a pandemic, right? And the nature of this conversation is probably different than it's ever been, right? In, in a lot of cases, we're engaging online. And I feel like one thing that our listeners deal with is an asymmetry between the amount of time that they have to talk to their relatives versus the amount of time they're spending on all these other sites and everything. Because in your example, your parents were smart. They were like, all right, we're going to do five days together. Is that the answer? Like we have to break from this sort of this bubble and try to get in front of people for prolonged periods of time? Is that is that a necessary precondition to this? It's not unnecessary in all cases, but if I'm a mental health professional, uh, and I can tell you that if your brain is being filled 18 hours a day with propaganda, a one-hour conversation with your in-laws is not going to be enough. If you can get them to buy into a time out from the constant thing, that's step one to a very speedy exit of somebody. I mean, it sounds like, it's interesting, it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is like the surest way to get through to people is just to not quit on them and to make sure they understand that you love them. Love is stronger than mind control. And if somebody is saying, hey, Jason, I've known you for years. You're a good guy. You're valuable. You're an important person. Please, if what you believe is true, then I need to learn it. Let's have a, an interaction about it. And if it turns out that we're both wrong, then let's pursue truth, however it, it presents itself. But let's, let's do the right thing. Well, thank you for what you're doing. I really appreciate it. We need to pull together. The solution is collaboration and cooperation, not fear and division and, and hatred. Um, Dr. Hesed, tell the people uh, for when we put this out uh, where they can find you, because I am sure that many of them are eager to like tweet at you with questions that you know you probably get a lot like, okay, but my brother said this, what do I do now? So uh, where can they find you? My website is freedomofmind.com. I have a research site that's nonprofit, freedomfromunduinfluence.org. But regarding QAnon and the cult of Trump, I really have a lot of resources on my website, on the blog. I have the bite model analysis of QAnon. I have a, uh, an AMA Reddit uh, on QAnon casualties, and I've highlighted some of the the big questions and my answers to those. I have a course, a three and a half hour course on Udemy, if you wanna have a deeper dive and understand this stuff. And I've written four books, including The Cult of Trump. Well, that's great, thank you so much. Yep, pleasure. All right, I hope you all enjoyed that interview and got a lot out of it. For grabbing ore this week, our grabbing ore for you is just to use this. I mean, if, if you have somebody in your life who has been captured by one of these uh, insane ideologies, by one of these cults, and you've possibly given up on them, 
give him another try, you know, reach back out to him, use what you learned in this conversation and try and reach back out to him with love and patience and understanding and just be in it for the long haul. Uh, that's, that's our grab and or, and I know that's a big challenge, but, but that's what it is this week. So I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi's at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at majority 54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music's provided by Kemet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.